Well, good morning. It's um, a joy to be with you. Uh, many of you, or at least several of you, I know, and um, many of you I hope to maybe get to know when we wrap up at the end. If I haven't met you already, it is my joy to be here, and uh, I know Rod is, uh, I'm sure, enjoying his time there at North Creek, and I, I appreciate him giving me the privilege to um, spend some time with you here uh, this morning. Let me just make sure we're up here. Here we go. Um, now, I don't know how many of you are like me, but I love a good turn of phrase. By that, I mean when words are constructed and put together in such a way that they evoke images or thoughts or, or things kind of beyond the words themselves. And, and one of my favorite phrases in the Bible, of which there are dozens, truth be told, um, is found in Acts chapter 19. And it's in conjunction with a riot that's taking place there. And uh, Paul had been preaching in Ephesus, a riot breaks out, and Luke puts it this way. He says, there arose no small disturbance. I could have just said there arose a great disturbance, but, but he, the way he worded it, there arose no small disturbance. Um, I find that amusing. And this morning, I guess I would say that I've, I have no small excitement um, to be here and to open the Word of God um, for you and with you this morning. Um, Albert read from Colossians 3, and I asked him to do that, and yet our time this morning is going to be spent in Colossians 1. Um, we're going to shift our attention toward the front of the book. We, we, we are going to consider what is perhaps the most powerful declaration of the deity of Christ, of the fact that Christ is in fact God, found anywhere in the scriptures. And the enemy would seek to discredit that message. Cults seek to distort that message. But by God's grace, I pray that we'll discern that message, we'll understand that message, and to that end, let's just commit the word and our time once again to him. We'll bow together in prayer. Father, thank you for this time together. I thank you for the time we've spent worshiping you through song and worshiping you through giving and worshiping you even as we fellowship together and now worshiping you as we gather around your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit would grant us insight and understanding I pray that it would speak to our hearts, that we would see Christ for who he really is, and that you'd be praised and honored as we do so. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, just out of curiosity, quick question. How many of you are the type that when you're reading a book, maybe it's a mystery, maybe it's uh, you know, some kind of an unfolding drama of sorts, um, that when things really get intriguing, you are tempted, yea, you might even jump ahead to look to the end of the book to find out. Anybody like ever, okay, so we have a couple that would find, a, have a propensity to do that. So um, I asked to have Colossians 3 read just for your benefit, okay? Because in reality, uh, Colossians 3, we, we love to land on passages like that that talk about what we're to do, how we're to do it, uh, you know, kind of give me the, cut to the chase, let's get to the bottom of things, um, and that's what Paul does. I mean, that is a glorious passage, but, but to truly understand the majesty of the passage, to truly understand the significance, we have to start at the beginning. We have to understand the foundation. We have to understand what it's all about. Knowing that Mr. Smith was the killer after all means nothing if we don't know the story, right? I mean, that's just, okay, fine, that's just a fact. We, we need to know the story. We need to know what undergirds it um, to put it into context. So we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, and, uh, and we're going to focus our time on verses 13 to 20. But, but until 
or, or to get there, before we get there, we want to set some of the background, some of the context so we can understand what it is that we're looking at. Um, the, the brilliance of this letter and the message in this letter will really come to fruition if we understand um, what's behind it. The Bible wasn't written in a vacuum, right? It's not just a series of sound bites. It's, it was written by real people, guided by the Spirit, to real people, addressing real situations. And so the more we kind of understand that and we can piece that together, um, the better we'll be able to walk through this book. So if, if you're taking notes, you'll see I'm just going to have some kind of random things that will pop up. Feel free to write them down if you want or not. But let's talk a little background. Most scholars put the writing of this particular letter between 60 and 62 A.D. That would be some 30 years after the death of Christ. Um, and uh, Paul is writing from prison. This is his first imprisonment in Rome. Um, this first imprisonment was different than other imprisonments. When he was uh, in Rome there, it was really more of, of like a house arrest. If you were reading in Acts chapter 28, you would see that he lived there for two years at his own expense. He welcomed all who came to him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God, teaching them about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. So he couldn't go anywhere. But, but really, he was free to have people come visit him, and they did. It was the only way that he could sustain himself. They didn't feed him three squares a day. They didn't, you know, take care of him. And that way, he had to have people supply his needs. So, so friends would come and go. They would bring him news of what was happening in the churches. Um, he would pray for them and send them off with letters and various things to tell people how he was doing. Uh, one of those friends was a man by the name of Epaphras. And Epaphras had traveled a thousand miles to bring Paul news of what was happening in the church at Colossae. How long does it take to travel a thousand miles? Well, if you're on a plane, eh, not too long at all. But they didn't have that luxury. Uh, he either traveled by boat part of the way and by land part of the way. This was a several month journey just to bring Paul news of what was going on at the church in Colossae. Some of it was very encouraging. Some of it, what was going on, was, was exciting, and Paul was thrilled by that. But there were also strange things afoot in Colossae at the time. Um, so strange, in fact, that what Paul sought to refute in this letter, what he tries to address in this letter to the Colossian church, doesn't even really have a name. It just came to be known as the Colossian heresy. It was this kind of amalgamation of thinking and philosophy. Uh, it, was, it had Christianity kind of mixed with a whole bunch of isms. Isms generally are not a good thing, you know, if you're just wondering, you know. Um, the first thing and probably the biggest thing that they were involved in, and just track with me on this, I'm not going to go, you know, totally deep, but it's important that we probably understand this, was something called pre-Gnosticism. Now, how many of you are head spinning already when I say Gnosticism and does anybody have any idea what Gnosticism is, what that essentially means? Because this was, a, this was a common philosophical issue within that era that was constantly creeping into the church. And it was constantly having to be refuted. It gets refuted by a number of different letters in the church. Gnosticism hadn't really fully surfaced, but this was like the beginning stages. And uh, R. Kent Hughes says this, so you can just kind of follow along if you can to try and understand this. He says this, Gnostics considered themselves to be people of superior knowledge who could help lesser Christians attain a deeper spirituality. They held as their basic doctrine that matter, that is anything physical, anything created, anything solid like the chairs you're sitting on, the floor you're standing on, anything that was matter was evil and anything that was spirit, that which was spiritual, was good. So physical matter is evil, 
that which is of spirit was good. They reasoned, therefore, that God could not be involved in creation because being perfect, he could not create physical matter, which was evil. He couldn't create evil. So the, the world came into being through a complicated process where God put forth thousands upon thousands upon thousands of lesser gods, things similar to him like angelic beings, and each one further removed and further removed and further removed and further removed. And so finally there was an emanation, there was this angelic being so distant from God that it could create the world and, and God wouldn't. He'd be removed from it. Um, this led to the belief that Jesus Christ, if he really was the Son of God, could not have taken on a human body because to do so would have made him evil. So Christ was not God. Um, to the Gnostics, Christ was not creator. He was, the incarnation was not real. He was not enough. That was a very common philosophy in the early church. Um, and that had to be refuted because it was just flat out wrong. They dealt with things like mysticism where, you know, that included things like secret passwords and astrology and the worship of angels. They dealt with Jewish legalism. Where else? Can anybody think of another church where this was a big problem? The issue of Jewish legalism? I mean, Paul's letter to the Galatians, to the church at Galatia, is all about that. It's, it's all about how the Judaizers, those that had, that had become believers but were Jewish by heritage, were imposing all of the Jewish tradition upon things. People saying, you can't be a Christian unless you're a Jew first, and then you can become a Christian. So you need to be circumcised, you need to follow all the traditions, and so on and so forth. Jewish legalism was being practiced here. Um, asceticism, basically the denial of, uh, or the deprivation of good things for the purpose of spiritual gain, saying, if I deny myself this, God is pleased. And then lastly, kind of the spiritual elitism that, uh, you know, they hold the keys to enlightenment. They have the way to a, a deeper walk. Um, so Paul was alarmed by all of this. I mean, obviously, this is a problem. Um, and he feels like he needs to address this particular problem. And so he sends a letter with Tychicus to be delivered to the church at Colossae. Um, that's what we hold in our hands now in the letter to the Colossians. It's believed that he was also carrying the letter to the Ephesians as well as the letter to Philemon. So Tychicus is kind of a messenger for Paul taking these letters to them. Um, the letter followed really a very Pauline format. I mean, he likes to start with doctrine and then he moves into duty, you know, what, it, what we're to think and to understand and then how we're to live, what we're to do. And, and, and this letter follows that same pattern. So let me just run us through real quick verses 1 through 12 so we can really get to the core of our text this morning. Um, he starts with a fairly traditional greeting in verses 1 and 2. He extends grace and peace. Grace was the traditional Greek greeting. Peace in Hebrew is what? Who knows what that word is? Shalom, traditional Hebrew greeting. Um, Colossae was, a, was a, a city that had a collection of both Jews and Christians or Gentile Christians, all Christians, but Jews and Gentile Christians. Um, so he extends this common Greek and Hebrew greeting. He moves from there into a, a, a commentary on Thanksgiving where he just thanks God for what he's doing there. Um, again, this is a very Pauline thing to do, always thanking God for those that are in his life, those that are ministering, those that are serving. Um, he takes time to thank God for their faith, and he brings them great encouragement. I think that's something that we can learn from ourselves. Uh, I think, quite frankly, that uh, um, 
the art of letter writing is becoming a lost art. I mean, we live in a soundbite, tweeting, texting, you know, world, and, and time is rarely taken to express one's true sentiments, let alone even to feel one's true sentiments. We're always moving so fast. Um, and, and I think we could learn something from Paul. Let me, let me just ask a question. If I were to send that to my wife on the phone, how do you think she would feel? Great. What, what am I saying? By the way, just so you know, in my humble opinion, you look great. See you later. 831. Say three one. Yeah, it may be. I don't know. Eight little letters, three little words, one meaning. I love you, right? So, I, you know, at one level, I'm sure she'd be happy I was thinking about her. But, but at another level, you know, words are powerful, right? And, and we ought to use them. We ought to use them to great effect. Paul did. And Paul always just encouraged the brethren. Um, and, and, and I think we could do a good job of that as well. He thanks God when he, when he finishes this. He thanks God for the, that their faith is strong, that they love the saints. They have a love for one another. They've embraced the gospel. They're bearing fruit. He's thankful to God for all these things. Um, let me ask you, if you received a letter from someone and they began it like Paul begins this letter, how would you feel? Come on, get to the stuff. Get to the, you know, get, what do you want? No, I mean, we would be encouraged, right? We would be built up. We would be lifted up. We would be blessed by that. So, so note, note to self. Why not next time you're writing a little note to somebody, start with a little word of encouragement. Tell them how you're thanking God for them. Tell them what you appreciate about them. You can just, I mean, 30 seconds of thought going into something as simple as a basic email can change a person's day. Why not? Paul was great at that. We can learn from that. So he, he, he starts with a greeting. He, he goes to thanksgiving, and then he, he goes to praying. Um, he prays for them in verses 9 through 12. Um, it, certainly we don't have time for an extensive review of this, but I, but I think it would in, you'd be encouraged as you read through it. Let's, let's read through. It leads into the text that we'll be discussing then this morning. So just follow along as I read verses 9 through 12 of Colossians 1. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. This is a rich prayer. Um, this is a, a prayer that's just pregnant with meaning and application and once again a challenge for us in terms of how we pray for people. Um, he prays that they might have the epigenosis of his will. That's not just a, a knowledge of his will. That's an experiential understanding of his will. That's a, that's a complete, thorough, total understanding um, of his will for them. That's his desire. Um, you know, I, he, he prays that they'll walk in a manner worthy of their calling, worthy of the Lord. That word worthy is the same word as that you would use to say the balancing of a scale. So, so you put everything that Christ did for you on one side of the scale, and your walk 
is to balance that. How are you doing? That's kind of where I'm at. And yet that's what we're called to do. We're called to balance the scale. Obviously, we can never do that fully. But that's the challenge, to balance the scale of what Christ did for you and what we're doing and living and how we're living for him. That's what he prays for them. Um, and then he describes the conduct. And he prays in specific ways. You know, and it, It's not often how I pray for people, and I should. It, it convicts me as I do this because sometimes I'm, I'm so quick to just get through a list that I'm not really investing in people's lives through the power of the Spirit. But he prays, he prays for them. And, the, and perhaps the most remarkable thing is, most scholars agree, Paul had never been to Colossae. He didn't know anybody there. And yet this is how he prays for them. This is how he thanks God for them. Um, he didn't even know them. Ever wonder how to pray for missionaries you've never met? Pray Colossians 1. Ever wonder how to pray for family members, to pray for fellow brothers and sisters in Christ that are worshiping in underground churches around the world, and you say, it's so far removed from me, I don't have a clue. Yes, you do. Pray this. Pray Colossians 1. And our motivation for doing so, because the Father has qualified, he has fit us, he has made us sufficient to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. All of that then sets the stage for where I want to go this morning. As we look to the scriptures, I, I would contend that the entire book, if you were to, to set a theme for the entire letter of Colossians, it would be this, the absolute supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. Certainly, we see that developed in these eight verses. We see Christ put on display in such a vivid and powerful way. Um, we'll see four different facets, four different portraits, if you will, or vignettes. Um, of the person of Christ, the incomparable Christ, each one in its own way designed to attack this false teaching that was creeping into the church. And, and all of this, as we come to understand it, hopefully will help us to see and to know our Savior in a rich way. Boy, I tell you, the hymns that we sang, the songs that we sang at the beginning um, as we were you know, committing our time uh, of worship to the Lord and through song, those were powerful testimonies of this passage. The third song we sang literally, I think, was taken from Colossians chapter 1. Um, uh, there's so much great, rich music being written, so much biblical music. It really it was, it was a blessing to my heart um, to see what the word says here sung out as an expression of who Christ is. But let's, uh, let's start looking at these four portraits. The first one we're going to look at is found in verses 13 to 14. Um, where we see Christ as Redeemer, and I'm encouraged to hear you guys read Scripture together. I enjoy doing that too, so I've got some of these up on the slides, and uh, some will read together, some I'll read, but let's go ahead and read these together. So either from your ESV translations there that you've got or up on the slides um, would be super, so let's read them. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. Boy, short verses just full of meaning. Let me ask a quick question. How many of you were or are perhaps afraid of the dark? Um, when I was young, it was not a good thing. Um, darkness was not a good thing. I remember uh, 1975. 1975 was a monumental year um, for a beach-going Southern California boy, teenager, like myself. Because in 1975, a movie came out by the name of, someone just said it, Jaws. 
okay? And, and uh, it was petrifying, you know, and <laughs> as, a, as a beach girl. And the ironic thing is, like, within a couple days of seeing it, I was back at the beach. It took me a while to get in the water, but I got in the water. That wasn't the problem. The problem was that when I went to sleep at night and it was dark, I kept imagining that Jaws the land shark would be walking through my door at any moment to take me down. I am serious. It took me a month at least. I'm 15 years old. It took me a month at least before I could actually turn my back to the door in bed. I had to either be on my back or facing toward the door and the hall light had to be on because, you know, land sharks are common in Southern California, especially in locked houses. Then, if I wasn't silly enough um, to, to, you know, avoid, I, I did try and avoid anything that might evoke those kind of images. I have a very, like, creative um, imagination. So, so then, I'm in the Navy now, I'm 19 years old, and a bunch of my friends say, we're going to go see this movie. It's got Jack Nicholson in it, and it's a Stephen King movie. And anybody know what I'm talking about here? The Shining. I'm saying, I don't need to go see this movie. Why am I going to subject myself to this movie? I, I don't, I, I'm not interested. I'm not, well, I got shamed into going. And um, how many of you, you're not going to be, I'm not going to tell Rod, but I mean, how many of you saw that movie in the day? I mean, so, I mean, you kind of maybe have some idea. Okay, so, so one of the key scenes, I mean, Jack Nicholson, you know, pokes his head through the bathroom door, you know, and says, hello, John, you know, I'm home, whatever. And how did, he, how did he bust into the door? With an axe, right? And he's, so he's got this axe. He's going after this gal. So, so we go watch this movie. It's in the fall. I'm living in Idaho. Um, I have a roommate, but he's gone. We work on different ships. He's gone. We watched the movie during the day. We were out way long, and I thought, I get home. The house is completely black. It's dark. It's cold outside. Like all the setting, the, set, the stage is set. <laughs> like, you know, coming off this movie. I, so I go to the house. And, and, uh, and I unlock the door, and I, I literally, I open the door this far. I, I, I reach my hand, and I flip on the patio light, the porch light, and then I flip on the entryway light, and then I walk in, and then I close the door, and I lock the door, and I turn around. And what is the first thing I see when I walk in the house? An axe, <laughs> because we had been chopping wood, and it was right in the kitchen, or the family room, leaning up against the couch. And I took the axe, and I literally buried it under the cushions of the couch. I walked to the hallway, flipped the light on. I walked down the hallway to my bedroom. I reached my hand and I flipped the light in. I closed the door. <sighs> I sat in my room for an hour. I had to go to the bathroom, but I didn't want to leave my room. I'm 19 years old in the Navy, this really macho guy, right? The dark is a scary thing, and your mind can, can play games on you, can it? In the scriptures, when we think about darkness... I mean, we think about darkness, we think, what makes it so fearful? It's the unknown, right? I don't know. I can't see. I don't have insight into. Things are concealed. Uh, I mean, the Bible often uses analogies about light and dark, doesn't it? And what does dark always represent? Evil. Darkness represents evil, not just something that's concealed, not just something that's unknown. In many respects, it, it's it's we know the essence of the darkness, and it's all bad. Everything we feared in life is reality in the spiritual realm. Darkness is evil. So, so Jesus is called, by contrast, he's called what? The light of the world. 
because that's who he is. That's what he is. Ephesians 5.8 says, we were once in darkness, but now we are light in the Lord. Biblically speaking, darkness is a metaphor for evil, and such is the case here. When it says that we have been transferred, we have been translated, we have been delivered from the domain of darkness, all that which we should fear, all that which would is evil and bad, we have been removed from. We have been delivered from, we have been taken from. Domain, it's funny, domain is not a word that we use often today, and if we do use it, we use it in what context? A website, right? Got to get a domain name for my website. Um, in biblical times, it was, it was jurisdiction. It was authority. It was a, it was a, a, the, a person's reign. Um, you know, rulers were over their domain. Their will, their commands had to be submitted to. They had to be followed. They had to be obeyed. Such was our lot. We were children of darkness. That was our domain. That's what we were beholden to. That's what we had to follow. That's who we submitted ourselves to, Satan himself being the one with jurisdiction and rule and authority over that domain. And Christ delivered us out of that. He, he, he pulled us out of that. He transferred us, delivered and transferred us um, to, to deliver us to rescue, literally to draw oneself out. You know, we didn't have ability to extricate ourselves from the domain of darkness, but Christ did. Christ pulled us out. He rescued us. The Father deported us. That's the picture when it says he delivered. He deported us. I mean, usually deportation happens to who? And I'm not going political here. I'm not talking about illegal, illegal immigrants. I'm thinking biblical times. Who, who was deported in biblical times after two kingdoms, you know, clashed? Who was deported? The losers, right? The winning side took possession of the land, the losers, so that they wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable being in their own, you know, cities and whatnot, were shipped out. They were deported. They were, they were taken out. The beautiful picture here is that, is that for us, the Father deports the victors. The Father takes the winning side out of that which had been our prison, as it were, and, and places us into his domain by his grace and through the work of Christ on the cross. Delivering and transferring is the work of the Father as we see in verse 13. In verse 14 we see that the work of the Son is redemption and forgiveness. The Father delivered us and transferred us. The Son redeems us and he has forgiven us. Um, without them we could not be transferred. It begs the question, we, you know, redemption is not necessarily a word that we use a lot these days. Um, but, but what is redemption at a basic level? If something gets redeemed, what's that? Being bought back, okay? So, so something is used to acquire something else. Um, it is paid for. It is redeemed. Um, in the case of Christ's work, it means to rescue by means of a ransom, the payment of a ransom. Um, it was often used to, of, of being able to free slaves or to free prisoners, they were redeemed. Um, what a picture for us. Bound as slaves to sin, held captive with no ability to escape. And Jesus says, I'll take care of that for you. I'll pay the price for them. And we're deported out of our slavery and bondage, brought into his kingdom. That song we sang before the throne of God above speaks to that issue of how he looks on us in all of our sin, in all of our failure, 
pardons us at Christ's expense. Um, there's another hymn, an older hymn, that, that speaks to this and maybe captures this as vividly as any. Um, and uh, I'm not going to put Ilya on the spot, but, you know, if you're game, I'm game, we can give this a go a cappella, okay? Um, and, uh, and sing it. And can it be this particular passage, you're singing the words, just think about what it means and think about it in the light of these verses, what Christ has done, okay? You, get, you good to go? Should we just read it or are you good to go? You want to give this a shot? Well, let's go for this, okay. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Amazing love, indeed. And great singing. And being a baritone, I love it when I get to set the key. So, <laughs> guys, I hope you appreciated that. Nice down low. Very good. Um, you know, in redeeming us, in redeeming us, he takes the penalty for our sin. He extends pardon to us instead, and we are forgiven. Forgiveness literally means to send out or to send away, to take an offense and to put it out of uh, the way. It, it, means, it came to mean the canceling of a debt, and, and truly that has been what has happened for us. We have been bought with a price, and if that fact ought to affect the way we live. One commentator wrote this, um, I was really stirred by this, he said, if we take our lives and lead them as we choose, we are taking something that doesn't belong to us, and we could be considered thieves in that regard. We have been bought. To, to just go ahead and take and do what it is that we would want to do is akin to thievery, because God owns us. We are hidden with Christ in God so we see him first as redeemer. He is the one who paid the price in his body. He was not some phantom. He was not some angelic emanation as the false teachers were proposing. He, he had a physical body. He was fully human. He paid for our sins in his body. But because the false teachers would have said, okay, well, if that's who he is, then he certainly isn't God because he can't be physical. He would be evil. Um, Paul wants to refute that. And so Paul turns straight to the issue of his deity. And he demonstrates how Christ was not only fully human, but he was fully God. And he gives him credentials as our creator, as our creator. Follow along, and as I read just verses 15 to 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him. And for him, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You know, just like many false teachers today, these teachers would not deny the importance of Christ. They would simply dethrone him. 
That was their goal. That's the goal of many religions today. I mean, how many religions do you know of give a place to Jesus? I mean, most would acknowledge him at least as what? A prophet, a good teacher, a good example. Um, Most would have room for Jesus within their worldview. But they don't give him the place that he occupies in reality. They dethrone him. Um, when I first came up here, we, I came from Southern California in 2007, and, and we were trying to sell a house, and it took a while to sell the house, and uh, so I was commuting for three months. And um, I would come up on a Saturday and then stay through till Wednesday night and drive home Wednesday night, be home Thursday, Friday, come up on a Saturday, and I, so I did that for three months. And I kind of got in this routine going up and down the five, and um, would always stop at the same place on my way down, and always stop in the same place on my way up. On the way down, I stopped in Santanella, and right off the freeway, there was a jack-in-the-box shell combo station. I'd highly recommend it to you if you are interested in that kind of thing. And every week, so every week, I'm popping in Wednesday late afternoon, early evening, I'm popping into the shell station, getting gas and, and uh, loading up on a little jack-in-the-box for the way home. And, and the guy that operated the shell station, the manager's name was Raj. He was an Indian guy. And we struck up a conversation, and every time, for some reason, he took a liking to me, and every time I came in, if he heard my voice or that type of thing, he'd pop out, and he said, oh, Jim, Jim, how are you doing? And so we would talk, and we had great conversation, and I explained what I was doing, who I was. I was, you know, commuting back and forth. I was a pastor at a church, and uh, so on and so forth. And, and, and over the course of months, we had opportunities to talk about various things. Things were going on in his life, and, and uh, I gave him a, a Gospel of John, and I encouraged him to read it, and... and uh, and, and we, you know, he was very open to things, but then he never really followed through on things. He never really followed through on reading it or, or you know, he never kind of took things further. And I remember once I was going to be up here for good and I wasn't going to be commuting, I made one final stop in there to see if I could see Raj because I knew I wouldn't see him very often or, you know, maybe if at all after that. And, uh, and so I, I really tried to press home the issue of the gospel. I really tried to kind of find out where he stood with Jesus. And, and, um, and so I remember just telling him specifically what Jesus came to do and, and what he requires and the fact that we have to repent and believe. And, and I got all done, and, and he looked at me. He goes, oh, oh, he says, we, we love Jesus. We love Jesus. I said, really? Oh, yes, yes, yes. And, and he went on to say that, oh, yeah, Jesus. And, and he named off about three or four other gods along with the 220 other gods that he happened to worship. Um, he's just, wa- hey, throw him in the mix, right? I mean, it couldn't hurt. So, so sure, I love to have him. And I, and I literally had to tell him, well, here's, here's, the, here's the issue. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There is only one God that you worship. Um, and, you know, he, he wasn't ready to receive that necessarily. Uh, he wasn't ready to understand it. God had not done the work in his heart. I pray that at some point he will. And I pray that at some point the Spirit will get through to him. You know, he, he gave Jesus prominence, but he did not give Jesus preeminence. And that is his position. That is who Jesus is. That is where he stands. And Paul just, he attacks these people who were, who were saying the same thing. Paul says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, when you read that, if you just read it at face value, that doesn't necessarily mean a whole lot. You're kind of saying, well, how does that say that he's God? Well, let me help try and unpack that a little bit because it's critical to understand two specific words. The first being this, the first, the word that's translated image. Um, in the Greek, it's, it's uh, akon. Um, what does that word look like and or sound like? Icon, okay? 
like an icon, and that's the translation here, an icon or an image. At dictionary.com, if you go to dictionary.com, you'll find 14 definitions for the word image. You'll find, or in the noun form, you'll find nine definitions of the verb form. So, so what is he trying to say? How do we know what this really means? Well, image implies this. It implies representation and manifestation. In other words, it's the very substance or embodiment of something or someone. Hebrews 1.3 says Christ is the exact representation, the exact image of the Father. <coughs> and, and Jesus himself said, anyone who has seen me has seen who? You've seen the Father. I, I am the manifestation of the Father. I am the representation of the Father. Um, he's the visible manifestation of the invisible God. It's not just like a photograph of something. This is the actual essence and substance of God himself. The second word is this, even maybe more intriguing, the word firstborn, um, prototokos in the Greek. If you're just interested, it's a fun word to say. You can impress your friends and family, prototokos. Um, now, let me ask you, what, what cult commonly attacks the deity of Christ based on this verse, that Jesus is the firstborn? What's that? Jehovah's Witnesses will routinely combat and attack the deity of Christ based on this verse. They'll turn you to Colossians 1.15. You'll say right there, he is the firstborn. If he's firstborn, he can't be eternal, right? Because he's the firstborn. Um, it's interesting that, that the word literally can mean firstborn. Um, in Luke 2.7, Mary brought forth her firstborn son. That's, she had other sons after that, but, but Jesus was her firstborn son, right? She was a virgin before that. She had no other children. So in that way, it was used literally of being the firstborn. It can be used figuratively. Exodus 4.22 says God calls the nation of Israel his firstborn. Was the nation of Israel born? No, he's using figurative language to just say these are mine. They're my heritage. They're my people. But there's a third meaning. It's one that signifies supremacy and uniqueness. And that's what Paul is driving home here. That's what he's been explaining as he's tried to put Christ on display in a very unique way. Um, in Psalm 89, 27, there God says that he will make David his firstborn higher than the kings of the earth. Was David the firstborn son, literally, of Jesse? He was what? The lastborn son. He was not the firstborn. So in that context, what is he saying? He's saying that he was going to give David a unique place, a supreme place, a preeminent place above all his siblings. He was going to have this unique uh, supremacy um, and, and a sovereignty over them. That's the sense that we have here. That's what Paul is trying to communicate. And, and I, would con I would contend that there are many proofs as to why that's what he means. Um, let me just give you a couple. How many know what John 3.16 says? For God so loved the world that he gave who? His only begotten son, if you learn it in King James Version, his only begotten son. God gave his only begotten son. So how can Jesus be considered the only begotten of the Father and be considered the firstborn son, as it says here? Did the scriptures make a mistake? No. We know that already, right? So, so if he's his only begotten son, the only one from the Father in that context, but here he calls him the firstborn, he can't mean firstborn 
literally, right? It has to mean the other context. That it's No, he's talking about a supremacy. He's talking about a preeminence. He's firstborn in that sense. Now, let me ask another question. What happened any time a man bowed down to worship either another man, like they did with Paul from time to time, or an angel? What, what, how, were, how was that person who bowed down to them always instructed? What were they told? Get up. Stand up. Why? Who is the only one worthy of worship? God himself is the only one worthy of worship. So, it's interesting that if you're reading Hebrews 1, 6, it says this, and again, when he, that is God, brings the firstborn into the world, that is Christ, he says, let all God's angels worship him. God commands the angels to worship Christ. So who must Christ be? He must be God. Because anything else, they would have said, don't worship him. So God points to the deity of Christ. And, and then finally, really, the, to say that Jesus was created or born would also nullify the very next verse in verse 17, because it's, or verse 16, by him all things were created. Whether on heaven or earth, Christ is the creator. Christ created all things. He was there before them. And Paul leaves no doubt, and quite frankly, Jehovah's Witnesses don't know what to do with this. They'll point you to Colossians 1.15, they don't know what to do with 16 and 17, which is why if you read their translation of the scriptures, the New World translation of the scriptures, you'll find an interesting addition in these verses. Four times they insert the word other. Now you're wondering, okay, how does that work? Well, I'll show you how that works, okay? These are their verses, verses 15 through 17 in the, in the New World Translation. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, because by means of him all other things were created in the heavens and upon the earth, the things visible and the things invisible, no matter whether they are thrones or lordships or governments or authorities, all other things have been created through him and for him. Also, he is before all other things, and by him all other things were made to exist. Is that what the scriptures say? No, that word doesn't exist there. And in fact, they even put it in brackets. Putting it in brackets to indicate it doesn't actually exist. But that's what it has to mean, because otherwise it means what? That Jesus Christ is God. Well, duh. That's what it says. So go with what the word says. He is God. He is divine. The scriptures can't be any clearer in this. He, he is first and foremost our redeemer. He is also our creator. All things have been created by him, through him, and for him. Now, we think of that little phrase, and again, it's, it's kind of a neat expression, by him, through him, for him. Yeah, can I, I might be able to memorize that. Might be able to. Paul, Paul is a brilliant man. As self-effacing as he was sometimes in the scriptures, he's a brilliant guy. And actually, what's happening here in just those little prepositional phrases, I mean, he is attacking the philosophy of the day. With the, he, he's going at them with, his, with their own medicine. So stay with me on this for just a second, okay? What's, what's in a preposition? That's what we're going to call this little section here. What's in a preposition? Um, <clears throat> Paul's use of three different prepositions is, is a way of refuting the philosophy of the false teachers. Here's how it works. For centuries, Greek philosophers had taught that everything, everything that existed, really, any truth, um, needed a primary cause, it needed an instrumental cause, and it needed a final cause. 
You're saying, what does that mean? Okay, a little plainer English. The primary cause is the plan. And my, that didn't work. I have another set of bullets that didn't have to show up in the middle. So if you think about it, if you're jotting this down, the primary cause basically is the plan, okay? The instrumental cause, that's the power. That's what, that's what gives us the ability to be true or to be so. The final cause is the purpose, so primary cause is the plan, instrumental cause is the purpose, or is the uh, power, the final cause is the purpose. When it comes to creation, as you look at these verses, look what it says. Jesus Christ is the primary cause. He planned creation. That's what it means when he says all things are created by him. Um, he's the instrumental cause. He produced it. It happened through him. And he is the final cause. He did it for his own pleasure. He did it for him, by him, through him, and for him. Paul is refuting the philosophers of the day. He's really attacking them with their own system of thinking to show how Christ is preeminent. He's not merely an angel or an emanation. He's not some phantom beast or something. He, he, he is real. He is genuine. He's creation's architect. He's its agent. He's its aim. He didn't create and take his hands off. No, what does verse 17 say? He's, he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. You know, in order to be before all things, you have to be what? Before all things. <laughs> you have to be eternal. And he is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was always in the beginning. And he's been active in creation ever since, sustaining it and holding it together. I'll know the answer to this question by how many of you raise your hand. How many, when you read this verse, verse Colossians 1, 17, think of laminin? Or know what I'm talking about when I say laminin? Ron does, okay. A few people do. Laminin, okay. If you've seen a video, um, or if you haven't seen a video called How Great Is Our God, a DVD, um, Louis Giglio, Chris Tomlin, I would encourage you, rent it, find it, buy it. It is outstanding. Um, and I'm not sure, now I'm going to keep you in suspense on what laminin is. You're just going to have to watch the, the DVD. That's all i got to say. So, um, but he links it to this. I don't know if it's fair to link it to this verse, but it's kind of an interesting thing on how Christ holds all things together. But listen to this quote. This is, uh, I found this curious too, and, and again, I don't mean to kind of get into lots of heady stuff, but, but track with me on this for just a second. This is from a book called The Atom Speaks, the A-T-O-M Speaks. Um, consider the dilemma of the nuclear physicist when he finally looks in utter amazement at the pattern he had now drawn of the oxygen nucleus. How many of you know how many, you know, what's, what's in an oxygen nucleus? You know, you've got protons. Remember all this? Okay, so we're in the back. So we got, we got generally speaking, you've got protons and neutrons in, in a nucleus. And what's on the outside, outside of the nucleus? Uh, the electrons, Okay. And, and we know, if we understand basic electricity, basic magnetism, we know that, that like charges do what? Repel. And, and unsimilar, dislike charges do what? Attract one another. Okay, so we got, a, we got a basic plan here. So he says, consider the dilemma of the nuclear physicist when he looks at this pattern of the oxygen nucleus. For here are eight positively charged protons closely associated together within the confines of this tiny nucleus. Eight positively charged particles. With them, eight neutrons, a total of 16 particles, eight positive, eight with no charge. Now, earlier, physicists had discovered that like charges of electricity, like we just said, like magnetic poles repel, unlike charges attract, 
and the entire history of electrical phenomena and electrical equipment has been built upon these principles of like, repel, and dislike, um, attract. So the question is this, what holds the nucleus together? What keeps it from flying apart? There are eight positively charged particles together in the same nucleus. Why doesn't it fly apart? Why doesn't it just explode? Scientists for years had no answer to this question. Um, apart from something that they called residual strong force. And, and now they believe it has to do with quarks and gluons and hadrons and the like. And I don't know if there are any nuclear physicists in the room or not. But uh, if they were, I think that we could probably tell them why oxygen nucleuses don't fly apart, couldn't we? Because Christ holds all things together. Christ holds all things together. He upholds the universe with the word of his power, Hebrews 1.3 says. He is our creator. What does all this mean for us? This should influence the way we live. Let me just real quick. Well, there's my middle ones. I just had the timing on. Look at that. Um, let, me, let me just quick, quick little application time, and we'll, we'll continue moving on through our last two, um, last two little vignettes that we're going to see. Turn to Romans 11.36 for just a moment. You got your Bibles? Turn to Romans 11.36. Within this particular passage, we see a very familiar pattern a very familiar set of terms and words as uh, Paul is, is finishing, you know, probably one of his most extensive doctrinal discourses through the book of Romans, the first 11 chapters. Um, he is winding that up, and as he concludes, he says this, again, very familiar, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever, amen. And, and we say amen, and then we, and then we kind of think, okay, end of the chapter, I'm done from, with my reading for the day, I'm good, I close the book, or uh, I'm you know, picking up, I really, I, I need to get something, Lord, give me something practical today, so we go to Romans 12, we forget about all the 11 chapters that led up to Romans 12, when he's writing, he's not thinking chapters, right, he's just writing. So he finishes this little doxology, and he continues on in his writing, he doesn't have a chapter break. He continues on in, Rome, in Romans 12 and verse 1. There is to be a response. When we think about all of who Christ is, there is to be a response. And Romans 12 and continuing tells us what that response should be. And, and part of it is to do this, to present ourselves as what kind of sacrifice? A living sacrifice that is holy, it's acceptable to God, which is our what? It's our spiritual worship or a spiritual service of worship. It's interesting, that word translated spiritual um, means that it's agreeable to reason. In other words, and, and probably if I put the word up here, the Greek word, you'd, you'd kind of get that, logikos, which sounds like what? Logical. Uh, in a sense, that's what he's saying. He said, in light of all of this that I've just written, who Christ is and who, you know, what he has done for us, in light of all of that, Yielding our lives in total surrender to him as a sacrifice is logical. It's rational. It's really, it's agreeable to reason. That's what we should do. He doesn't just call us to do certain things. He gives us the basis for it. That's what he's doing in Colossians here as we consider who Christ is. He's giving us the basis for why we should live. 
I wonder sometimes, are we living logically or illogically? <laughs> Does our life logically match who we are in Christ? Or is it illogical the way that we're living? Well, he's our savior. He's our creator. Again, these will go a little quicker. Thirdly, we want to see this. He is our head. Let's just read this together. Verse 18 from Colossians chapter 1. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He is indeed our head. Let me ask you this question uh, in real life. How long can you live without your head? Any guesses? Not long, right? Probably a reason why they developed that as a means of execution a while back because, yeah, we don't, we don't last long. Um, blood pressure drops essentially to zero. We're not in closed system anymore. We're an open system, right? So blood pressure goes away. Oxygen can't get into the bloodstream. Nothing is controlling the nervous system. Um, yeah, everything just shuts down and we die. Just out of curiosity, can you think of something that can live without its head? And before you say chicken, they don't live. They're just like, you know, impulses and, <laughs> and then they go. Okay, so they run, but they're not really living. So, what's that? A worm. Some say a worm because it kind of has the ability to regenerate itself. Um, there is actually something that can live without the ability to regenerate its head, to regenerate itself. Um, and it's one of our favorites. I th you'd be surprised at this, but it's, it's the family-friendly cockroach. Yes, the cockroach, um, the cockroach breathes through its body. It doesn't have lungs. It breathes through its body. And if well-fed, can live for up to two weeks without its head. It can stand, it can move, it can run, it can respond to outside stimulus. Its main problem is it's very susceptible to prey because it can't see the bird coming or the lizard or whatever it happens to be. In the end, though, the hardy cockroach eventually dies, usually from starvation. Two weeks. Now, assuming that Paul didn't have cockroaches in mind, when he wrote verse 18... What's the significance of Christ being the head of the body, the church? What's the significance? We can't live without him. We can't function without him. It's impossible to function without him. We may stand and move and respond to outside stimulus, but our spiritual life, our vitality shuts down. It becomes non-existent. It's impossible to live healthy, headless lives. As believers, he is our head. And we need to recognize him as such. And we need to lean upon him as such. According to verse 18, he is also our beginning or the beginning. He's the leader. He's the originator. Our spiritual life has its origin in him. And, it, and, and now has its operation in him. He brought us to life. He sustains our life. And again, the same word, prototokos, he is the firstborn from the dead. Was Jesus the first person to be resurrected? Is he the first person to be resurrected? No, he wasn't the first person. So, what is, so what's Paul saying? Did he goof here again? No, we're not talking literally firstborn. We're talking preeminent. He is the preeminent one, the supreme one who has been 
born from the dead in what way? Never to die again. Did Lazarus die again? Lazarus died again. People that were raised, Tabitha, various people that were raised, they died again. Jesus didn't. Jesus now lives forever. He is in that way the preeminent one from the dead. The firstborn from the dead. Again, Paul pointing to the supremacy of Christ in all things. I like what Wearsby says. He says, the tomb was a womb from which Christ came forth in victory. The tomb was a womb from which Christ came forth in victory. He is the firstborn that in everything he might be preeminent. He has the preeminence over everything. All right, final portrait here as we conclude. Follow as I read just the last two verses, um, 19 and 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He, lastly, is our reconciler. He is our redeemer, our creator, our head, and our reconciler. Um, when we think about this concept, it says that, that in him, uh, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. What, what would be contained in that? What, what, what's Paul saying? The fullness of God. Can the fullness of God be contained in anything? I mean, really, I mean, he's, if he's omnipresent, he is, he's everywhere that exists. Um, he, he's, he can't be bound by time. He can't buy about, I mean, what's, what's Paul trying to imply here when he says the fullness, that all the fullness of God dwelt in, it, dwelt in him? Essentially, I think he just means this. The sum total of divine power, the sum total of all the attributes of God were contained in the person of Christ. Why? Because he is God. So he contains it all. It's interesting that this, this notion, this uh, divine power and attributes, this was a term, um, the fullness of something. That's a term that the Gnostics hijacked later to describe you know, this special knowledge that they had, that Christ was just a, a rung in the ladder, as it were, uh, towards spiritual enlightenment. And, and Paul hits him with their same term. He says, no, you don't get it. Christ is everything. Christ is the fullness of God. Christ is all in all. Um, the form dwell there means to be at home permanently. It permanently resides in Christ. It always has been that way. It always will be that way. Um, and, and then he goes on to say that what he's done, he has reconciled, he has reconciled um, things to the Father. What, what does reconcile mean? Do you, do you ever do uh, any reconciling yourself? To exchange? A lot of times you would talk about it almost like with a checkbook, right? You kind of reconcile the ledger. You kind of just make things add up. Um, you uh, do that. I mean, essentially, the root word means simply to, to change or to return one to favor. One who was out of favor is now brought to favor and placed in a position of favor. In Romans 5, 2 Corinthians 5, Ephesians chapter 2, it refers to the action that God takes changing man's standing from enemy to friend. God reconciled us to him. We were outside of it. He brought us. He changed our standing. He brought us to favor with himself. He restored a right relationship um, with him. And that's the form that's used here. And, and when he talks about reconciling all things to himself, um, what, what in your mind doesn't that mean? Some, some people might look at that and say that that means that, okay, one day, regardless of what you did in this life, Christ will bring you to the Father and you'll be made right with him. There's a guy that wrote a, a 
preacher in Michigan that's become very popular with a book that you know came out about six months ago or seven months ago um, called Love Wins, who's kind of a s expounding on this kind of notion that ultimately love, his love wins out over all things. He reconciles all things to himself and, and we would call that what? Universalism, that distortion that says everybody gets there, it doesn't matter what you do here. Is that what Paul's saying? That's what he's going to do? He's going he's gonna to make... He's going to bring everybody to himself. If he's saying that, then he contradicts what Jesus himself said in Matthew 25. He contradicts what um, Revelation 20 says and what John wrote there. And the fact of the matter is, no, there will be a day of reckoning. But Jesus stands ready to reconcile all things, all people in every place, he, to reconcile them to himself. One day, one day in the millennium, Ron and I were talking about that just a little bit earlier, one day all things will be made right. I think it's pointing there. All things will be made right one day. All wrongs will be righted. All injustices will be clarified and be made right. Um, God will be in all and, and, and all. Isaiah, the book of Isaiah speaks at length about the beauty and the glory of that time. So uh, while this has a future look, I think for us today, the cross also has set the stage uh, for effects that we feel today. That we are reconciled to him, our redeemer, our creator, our head, and our reconciler, that's the person of Christ. When we read earlier, when Albert read earlier from Colossians chapter 3, it would be easy to just say there, that's the stuff I need to know. That's what I want to know. Tell me how to live tomorrow. Tell me what I have to do today. It's important that the Bible gives us that, but it's important that it tells us why. When, when Paul says to set your mind on things above, he's calling us to see Christ in all his preeminence, in all his glory, when he calls us to put to death those sexual sins that so easily beset us and, and to put off, to put away the social sins that are, that are not only often tolerated but in some cases even condoned, um, he, he does so because it's completely and utterly inconsistent with who we are and whose we are if we truly believe that Christ is who he said he was. These are the very things, the things that he's telling us to put to death and to put off are the very things that put Christ on the cross in the first place. For us to embrace those, for us to, to, to want those, to us, for us to live in that kind of way, I mean, those are the very things that are going to usher in the wrath of God in judgment. That's not our calling. That's not what we're called to. When we're called to put on compassion and humility and meekness, it's not just a shallow, empty command. It's not just for the rule followers among us that just want that list. You know, just let me line up to the list and I'll be good. Um, no, we do so because Jesus has redeemed us. He's forgiven us. He's created us. He's prepared works beforehand that we should walk in them. He's our head. He provides sustenance and strength and direction for all these reasons and so many more. Whatever we do, in word or in deed, we're to do it in the blessed name of the Lord Jesus Christ because we understand who he is in all his glory. I pray that's your heart's desire. For some it might be possible that you have to confess that, that these things aren't true in your life right now. Or, or maybe that for some of you, you've been living a head, headless, cockroach-like life. I mean, you're responding to stimulus. You know, you're kind of going through the motions, but, but you're not connected to the head. There's no spiritual vitality. Jesus Christ invites you to come and to be made whole and to be reconciled to him so that you can have that spiritual nourishment. Let's pray. We'll conclude our time with a song. Glory to God. Father, we thank you for...
these portraits of Christ. We thank you that the scriptures don't simply just give us the rules of how life is to be lived. Father, we would have failed miserably, and we do fail miserably. No, you have shown us who you are through the person of your son. And Father, I pray that that image, those, those vignettes, those portraits would be vivid in our mind. That as we live our day and we make decisions day by day and we, and we have choices day by day, that we would remember that you have redeemed us. And as you've forgiven us, we are to forgive others. Father, I pray that we would remember that you are the creator. Everything that is made has been made by you. And Father, we are thankful for that. And we want to live in accordance with that. We know that you have made us. You've prepared works for us to do. Father, help us to do so for your glory. Father, keep us attached to the head. We understand and recognize that our spiritual vitality is utterly dependent upon it. And Father, we thank you that we can have relationship. We have been reconciled to you because of your son and for his glory. Father, confirm these truths to our heart, I pray. May it affect the way we live and the way we think. And we pray this all in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.